0: The Pharisees love power and control over other people. Um, They fail to exercise power and control over themselves, as we all do. But they love to control other people. Let's pray, look at this text, see what it will teach us. Lord, show us who we are. And show us, Lord Jesus, who you are. And how much you've come to con- confront and heal control freaks. Um, use a wretched, sinful, crooked stick that reads and speaks to show the narrow way of the Lord Jesus, and we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Luke 11, beginning at verse 37, I'll read just through verse 46. While Jesus was speaking, a Pharisee asked him to dine with him, so he went in and reclined at table. The Pharisee was astonished to see that he did not first wash before dinner, and the Lord said to him, Now you Pharisees cleanse the outside of the cup and of the dish, but inside you're full of greed and wickedness. You fools! Did not he who made the outside make the inside also? But give us alms those things that are within, and behold... Everything is clean for you. But woe to you Pharisees, for you tithe mint and rue and every herb and neglect justice and the love of God. These you ought to have done without neglecting the others. Woe to you Pharisees, for you love the best seat in the synagogue and greetings in the marketplaces. Woe to you, for you're like unmarked graves and people walk over them without knowing it. One of the lawyers answered him saying, teacher? Teacher? In saying these things, you insult us also. (laughs) And he said, Woe to you lawyers also, for you load people with burdens hard to bear, and you yourselves do not touch the burdens with one of your fingers. Amen. The grass withers, the flowers will fade away, but God's word will not fade away. It abides forever and forever. Uh, We used to subscribe to National Geographic when we had children in the home and perhaps in a National Geographic or somewhere else you've seen a picture in a third world country where people carry things on their backs without any kind of cart or vehicle or animal or anything, in places where people are the beast of burden. And you've seen these pictures, you know, with people bent over a little bit and things stacked up about 10 high. And you think, how are they balancing in that? How are they doing that? And, and, and uh, I couldn't do that and all those kinds of things. Um, suppose you're in one of those countries and you're observing one person helping load another person. I mean, think about it. I, I, I don't know if you're the one carrying the burden, how you get the top stuff on there. You know, you need somebody to help you. And so, so suppose that, that, uh, that somebody's being loaded up by his friend and you're thinking, my goodness, he'll collapse within 100 yards. You know what I mean? And, um, and then he and the friend take off and he's loaded up 10 feet high and the friend has nothing. And so there are two problems, right? Is the guy going to collapse... And number two, the inequity of the situation. Hmm. When we hear about things like that or situations kind of like that, it bothers us greatly. I mean, there's stories about pastors who preach marital fidelity and have affairs, you know, and preach tithing, and then people find out, well, they don't tithe. Oh, okay. Hmm. Why? Well, the easy answer is hypocrisy, right? There's a significant lack of fairness and equity in these stories and others like them. The deeper desire may be, or the deeper thing may be a desire for power and control over other people in order to help people overcome the insignificance that haunts them in the depths of their hearts. When Jesus looked at the lawyers, the scribes, and the Pharisees, he saw a group that exemplified this sort of hypocrisy and desire for control. Now, these lawyers were a professional group. I don't know whether they carried cards. I don't know if they had an online uh, group or anything like that. Um, But they were a professional group that studied the Old Testament, tried to apply it to contemporary life. Some of them were Pharisees as well. Jesus frequently called them hypocrites, and that's what he's doing here. Uh, there's the woe Jesus pronounced, the insult that was delivered or taken, the reason Jesus had offered. And then I'm going to go outside this text to an alternative that kind of fits with this hand in glove and I think brings us right to the foot of the cross. Okay, So Jesus says, as he had said to the, uh, to the Pharisees, "'Woe to you lawyers.'" What does this mean? I mean, we don't hear the word woe very much, you know, maybe in church every now and then. What does it mean? Well, I'm going to clarify that by saying this woe is what the theologians call an eschatological woe. That didn't help either, did it? What is an eschatological woe? Well, an eschatological woe is the kind of woe that Jesus is pronouncing in the book of Revelation in chapters 8 and 9 and 12. At the end of time, when the wrath of God is coming upon those who have rejected God and neglected God, He pronounced woe on them in the book of Revelation. An eschatological woe is a woe of judgment. It's a, you guys are in deep trouble uh, here at the end of time and you're without Christ and you're still in your sins. So why is this an eschatological woe? How is this connected to Revelation? Well, this is, this in Luke 11, is final judgment pronounced in space and time history. He is saying the wrath of God is upon you. You think you're the good guys. You think you're the fair-haired friends. The wrath of God is upon you, revealed now through the prophet, the final prophet, the Lord Jesus. And it's not just one. It's woe, 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 as it had been on the Pharisees. Woe, woe, woe. And as you will read in the book of Revelation, woe, 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 up to seven woes. And it's a big deal. We read over it, but... Looking at it through the lens of Scripture, it's real and very, very significant. In John chapter 3, verse 18, just two verses after the most famous verse in the Bible, it says, Whoever believes in Him is not condemned, but whoever does not believe is condemned already, because he has not believed in the name of Of the only Son of God. What is Jesus saying there? He's saying that the condemnation of God is upon you now. And you can expect the wrath of God in the future if you don't change, if you don't believe in Jesus. Whoa, is that what he's saying? Yeah, it's what he's saying. He's saying that here as he said it in John chapter 3. Any who do not love Jesus, who do not repent, who do not believe, those who are outside of Jesus Christ are under the woe of God, the wrath of God, at this very moment. It's the dark cloud in their lives that they deny. The woe is pronounced. Now this is insulting, secondly, to the lawyer because... (laughs) They've gone to a dinner party. This is one of the dinner party dialogues. And while he's rebuking the Pharisees, the lawyers finally realized, well, this is kind of bad for us too. Um, I'm a little surprised that only one lawyer spoke up, but it could be, and and by the way, this is really not related to lawyer today. I don't know if any of you are lawyers, but this this is a church office kind of thing. He may have represented other people, But see, they thought they were a part of the solution. Remember, the the Pharisees, and, and I think to a certain extent the scribes, were a reform movement that was trying to grab Israel and bring Israel back to where Israel needed to be. They would have said, we're the good guys. We're the guys that are trying to get Israel back on track. And Jesus is saying, you're off track, guys. You're way off track. Oh. You're not a part of the solution. You're a part of the problem. Oh. And I think that's why Jesus did not back down and did not remain silent. Some of us might have wimped out. But the consequence is heaven or hell. And they needed to be challenged and they needed to be changed. We live in a day and age where confronting people who differ uh, from us is very out of vogue. Very out of vogue. But it seems to me that throughout the Bible, the confronting of evil teaching is a necessity because the gospel is at stake. And when the gospel is at stake, we must not flinch from opposition to error. In Galatians chapter 2, Peter has been in Galatia and um, he's been eating with Gentiles like he should have been because from Acts chapter 10, God had declared all foods clean It was okay to eat with Gentiles. It was okay to not worry about the dietary laws, the ritual law, the ceremonial law. And so Peter's there and probably having barbecue pork. Who knows, okay? And some Judaizers show up from Jerusalem, and Peter backs off. Peter, the apostle Peter, Peter, James, and John, one of the three that we would say, are the kind of the inner circle of the twelve, Peter backs off from fellowshipping with the Gentiles and starts acting like Jews only are acceptable. And Paul shows up. And what did Paul do? He rebuked him to his face. Why? Because the gospel was at stake. The gospel was at stake. Here with the Pharisees and with the, with the, scri- with the lawyers, the gospel is at stake, at stake. And the gospel is always going to be insulting to people who rely on themselves rather than Jesus. Because the gospel humbles our pride. The gospel says, you're not good enough. You can't be good enough. And some people, I think the main reason people... Some people never get to Jesus and never become Christians as they can never get over that hill. Well, yeah, I'm an American. I'm an Oregonian. We take care of ourselves. (laughs) Well, maybe in some ways, but not in terms of entrance to the kingdom of God. You don't take care of yourself there. Jesus brings you in or you don't come in at all. So it's a big deal. That's why Jesus is not wimping out here. This is why Jesus is doing these things. The wrath of God abides on these people. He loves these people. He'd like to see these people turn. So, then, thirdly, he describes what they do. You load people down with burdens hard to bear. You know, backs over, 10 feet high. What are the burdens? They're laws. They're laws. They load them down with a dot, 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 details of the laws that are impossible to keep. Just like, you know, if I was at the Olympics and they said, okay, we want to put you in in the weightlifting, Alan, we want you to clean and jerk 600 pounds. I'd say... I can't budge it. I can't even roll it across the floor, much less pick it up. That's what this law is. Friend, that's what the law of God is. If you think you're keeping the law, if you're thinking you're making God acceptable to you or uh, making yourself acceptable to God, making God pleased with you, making God where He wants to offer you something, it's like you trying to pick up 600 pounds. You're not budging it. You load people up with burdens hard to bear. These scribal interpretations of the law and the traditions of the elders are burdens that are too heavy to pick up. And as time went by, well, what happens today? So let me ask you a question. This is a simple question. In America today, do we have more laws or less laws than we had 10 years ago? Oh my goodness, you'd say, well, that's easy. We've got many more. You know, they pass bills that nobody's read. They've got 1,500 pages in them. What happens over time? Law increases. What happened over time with them? Law increased. So it's not just that the load, it, was, it was a big load. It was a load that was increasing. And it was heavy. And it was exceedingly complex. I could turn you to Matthew 23 and read verses 16 to 22. Too, and you just see how complex their law was. Just like today. <laughs> my accountant sends me my tax return and he says, now review it and tell me if you think it's right. <laughs> you just laugh, right? I mean, I don't know if it's right or wrong. That's why I hired him for crying out loud. You know? It's just so complex. And what he's saying to these guys is, you hinder, you don't help. And the result among the people of Israel was consciences that were burdened down with their sinfulness because the lawyers had missed grace in the gospel. You know that Abraham believed God in early Genesis and it was credited to him or reckoned to him as righteousness. And then what, 430 years later, the law came. So um, Abraham's being in covenant with God was not by law-keeping. I mean, Paul makes that point in Galatians. Uh, It's certainly not by law-keeping at all. Because the law came 430 years later. It was by faith. And so that's what the lawyers are doing to other people. They're just stacking that stuff up on their back and stacking the complexity up year after year after year after year. And nobody's able to keep it. What do the lawyers do for themselves? Well, they make loopholes in a nutshell. Now, the ESV translates that you, this, you yourselves do not touch the burdens with one of your fingers. The New American Standard says you yourselves will not even touch the burdens with one of your fingers. Either they will not move a finger to help other people, or their interpretations enable them to escape. They do not use even a finger and don't need to. Said another way, they exempted themselves from the laws that they made for other people. One of the things as this country um, inches toward a national health insurance, and I don't care what you think about that right now, I just wanna make a point about it. I think the vast majority of people would say, whatever the people in Washington do about health insurance in the future. Let's have it that they have the same health insurance that we do, right? Sure. Do I think they will? Mm, I don't know. I'm a skeptic about those people, to be honest with you. These people are like that. They say, we want you to live this way, but we don't have to. We don't have to. There's a loophole in our law that means we don't have to. As the evangelical Anglican bishop of the late 1800s, J.C. Ryle, said, the lawyers require others to observe wearisome ceremonies in religion which they themselves neglected. They had the impudence to lay yokes upon the conscience of other people and yet to grant, themse- grant exemptions from those yokes For themselves, said more simply, they had a double standard. They did not practice what they preached as Jesus specifically said in other places. And so we must beware of teaching a standard to others in the church or in home or at work or in the neighborhood. We must beware of teaching a standard which we don't aim at ourselves or supporting a standard that we don't exert ourselves toward. One of the real problems, and E.C. probably told you this somewhere along the way. Actually, he and I have talked about it. There's a tendency in Presbyterian churches for people to think, if I know more, I'm more sanctified. If I know more, I'm more holy. No. No, that doesn't follow. Holiness of life is measured where the rubber meets the road. It's not measured by what's between the ears. It's measured how I treat my brother and sister in Christ and how I treat my neighbor and how I treat my friend and how I treat my wife and children and work associates and on and on and on. And how I live before the awesomely holy God. So these people said... Here's what the lawyers were saying. As their laws increased in complexity and number, few people will keep these laws. God will love you, accept you, and grant you entrance into heaven. And they didn't follow their own laws. There was only one person who ever perfectly practiced what he preached, and that was Jesus Christ. Both in his act of obedience, keeping the law, and his passive obedience, dying on the cross, as a sufficient and acceptable sacrifice before His Father. So, here they are burdening people up with things that can't be born, can't be done, and they're not doing it themselves. So where do we go from here? Well, I want to direct your attention. If you've got a Bible, turn over. This is not going to be another whole sermon, okay? Just relax. Turn over to Matthew 11. I want to read one of my favorite little passages in Matthew, I mean in the, in the whole Bible, right, actually. In Matthew 11, verses 28 through 30, and the connection uh, between the verse here, 46, and the verse I'm, verses I'm about to read in Matthew 11 is the word "burden." It's the same Greek word, the word "burden," where Jesus said, "Come to me all who labor and are heavy laden." all who are stacked up ten feet high on your back of sins, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and lowly in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. For my yoke is easy, and what my burden is light. So who is Jesus addressing? He's addressing the weary and the burdened. Now, he's not talking about those whose washing machine went out on Friday and they they couldn't wash their clothes. Uh, That is a trial of sorts, and I'm not making light of that. But in this context, when he says those who are weary and burdened, he's talking about those who are weary because of unsuccessfully trying to keep the law perfectly enough to go to heaven. He's talking about those who have tried tried and tried and tried and tried and know That they are not good enough to please God. He's talking about those who know that they're sinners and who are beyond a remedy of their own making. He's not talking about the wise and the learned, it's up in verse 25 of Matthew 11. We didn't read that part. He's not talking to those who have knowledge, head knowledge, but don't know that they're sinners. He's not talking about those. And what does Jesus say to these people that are so weary and burdened? He says, come to me. Come to me. He doesn't say repent. He doesn't even say believe. I think they're built into this. But He says, come to me. What does He mean by come to me? Well, look at the verse. It's amazing how God works this stuff out. Look at the verse that Sean read from the New Testament reading, the last one, the last verse, right at the bottom down there, all set off by itself. Jesus said to them, I'm the bread of life. Whoever comes to me, whoever comes to me shall not hunger, and whoever believes in me shall never thirst. Now, comes to me and believe in me are used parallel, and actually they mean the same thing in this context. So when Jesus says, come to me, he's saying, believe in me. He says, take my yoke upon you. His yoke in distinction from the yoke of the Pharisees and the scribe. Their yoke was an expanding law of complexity and number of laws. Scrupulously and rigorously applied. It was salvation by works. But Jesus' yoke was to yoke people to Himself. He says, if you want to get yoked to something, get yoked to me. Many people hear these words and somehow they misunderstand. They think, well, I've got to go to the law first. I've got to become better first. I've got to fit myself for believing. They think something, let me first quit X or Y or let me start doing Z or P and then I can come to Jesus. That is not what it says. The gospel is that you can come to Jesus today. Any people in the universe can come to Jesus today if they will come rightly. If they will come in knowledge and belief and, and renunciation, casting themselves upon Him and entrusting themselves to Him. Right now, just as you are. Actually, we sang that today. Did you note that? It's amazing how God puts this. I came to Jesus as I was. How else could you come to Jesus? (laughs) And and you're not going to be significantly different if you wait two weeks to come to Jesus. You say, I'll clean up my act in the next two weeks. And then I'll come to Jesus. What other jokes do you know? (laughs) What other jokes do you know? Really? No. If you won't come to Jesus today, I don't see that you'd ever come if you have never come. It's no, you've got to do X, Y, and Z and then you come to me. No, that's not what it is. He says, learn from me. What do you learn from Jesus? The gospel. You listen to Jesus. You observe Jesus' life and death and resurrection. And he says, look, I will give you rest. Rest for your souls. I will give you relief. I will give you relief from that big stack of sins or the Pilgrim's Progress image, that sack of sin that's growing on your back. I'll give you relief from the legal pursuit of righteousness. You ever been in a foot race? I remember in the fourth grade, I was the second fastest kid in the class. David McKithen, whose dad was a Methodist minister. He could run like lightning. And he always beat me off the start. And I could run as hard as I wanted. I could never catch David McKithen. And friend, if you're trying to chase being good enough to please God, you're just like I was in the fourth grade. You will never catch up. You will never catch up. You just be running for all you can and you're just just not going to get there. He will give you relief from the pursuit of righteousness by law-keeping. He will give you relief from the misery of a guilty conscience. And this rest, I'm going to pull that big big word out again, okay? This rest is eschatological rest. Just like the woes are eschatological woes, the kind of woes that... Or in Revelation, this rest is the rest of the people of God gathered to the person of God in the place of God with the protection of God and the bounty of God for all eternity future. This is that rest. Rest for your souls. Jeremiah chapter 6, verse 16, Thus says the Lord, Stand by the roads and look and ask for the ancient paths where the good way is, and walk in it and find rest for your souls. Do you know rest for your soul? There's only one way to find rest for your soul. It's not the laws that so many heap up. To entice them, Jesus says, I am gentle and humble in heart. Jesus said, I'm not trying to control you in order to fill up the emptiness in my life. (laughs) There is no emptiness in the life of Jesus Christ. There is no insignificance in the life of Jesus Christ. He is God. That is why He can be gentle and humble in heart. That's why He can urge upon me and you and all of us the very best. That's where He contrasts with the scribes and the Pharisees. Who would have said that the scribes and the Pharisees were gentle and humble in heart? Gentle and humble in heart makes Jesus attractive, doesn't it? Do you see Jesus that way? How do you see Jesus? What's your view of Jesus? I'm going to ask you. I don't, have I done this in this congregation yet? I don't know. I'm, if I've done this, you forgive. I'm an old man and I forget, okay? Some people's view of God, here's your view of God. There's your view. Some people, this is that's their view of God. Other people have this view of God. Come to me, all you that labor and are heavy laden. What's your view of God? Do you view of God that God wants the best for you? Your view of God that God's just, he's up there in heaven, he's looking down so he can stomp on you the first chance you get out of line. Is that your view of God? That's not the Bible's view of God. I don't know where you got that view of God if you've got that view of God. But that's not the Bible's view of God. Do you experience Jesus' way? His yoke is easy and His burden is light. Again, that's in contrast to the scribes and Pharisees. That's attractive and inviting. There's something particularly offensive about a situation in which people legislate for others and then exempt themselves. That is, when people don't try or actually practice what they preach, they just want to control you. Yes, we must strive to practice what we preach, to do what we know. That's certainly true. And if we study the Bible carefully, we will see we do not now and will not in the future live up to what we preach. So what to do? We remember that Jesus perfectly lived up to what he preached, that he perfectly kept the law, and he will credit to our account his perfect practice, and he will take the penalty for our bad practice. That's why He bids everyone to come directly to Him without first doing good works. We can come to Him directly right now as He comes to us and says, Come unto Me, all ye that labor and are heavy laden. He will receive you. And so I want to encourage you this morning, if you never have, to do that. To pray and pour out your heart to Him and plead for mercy as you confess your sins and trust Him to give you eternal life because He will. He will. And I encourage you to give up the wearying and heavy yoke of trying to please God by your own works. Listen, Jesus has pleased God by his works. And he did that for his people. And if you're united to Christ by faith, the Father loves you because of what Jesus did. These people are doing, you know, I'd like to preach this and be able to say, that was just a problem back then. But it wasn't. It's so relevant. It's the same thing today. Don't don't carry the big burden when Jesus says he'll take it for you. Let's pray. Lord our God, um, we come to you because you said, come to me. And some of us would have to admit we have labored and we are heavy laden because... We just can't run fast enough. We can't carry a big enough load. But we are undone and we know it. And we thank you, Lord Jesus, that you bore the burden, the burden of our sins upon yourself on the tree. Or as Peter said, he bore our sins in his body on the tree. Thank you, Lord. Grant us faith, grant us grace help us to work this through so that when we strive to do work good works it's not it's not to gain something like your love but it's to show you our love and we pray through Christ our lord amen